Hello and welcome to the El Monitor podcast, reading the Middle East with Gilles Kepel, where each month we take a deep dive with authors and thought leaders who are shaping the way we think about this complex and dynamic region. We are particularly honored today to welcome a very, very special guest, Pulitzer Prize winner Dr. Daniel Jurgen for his famed bestseller, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power, published in 1991. It was called a prophetic book, and actually it was the book that we all read and we all instructed our, our students to read. Daniel founded Cambridge Energy Research Associates in 1983. It was the most famous consulting company in the world, advising governments and private corporations on energy market and strategy. And he is now vice chairman of S&P Global. His latest book, which I have here, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, was just republished as a Penguin paperback and was dubbed a masterclass on how the world works by National Public Radio. Dear Daniel, welcome to Reading the Middle East at a very timely moment where your unique expertise is particularly sought after. So thank you for being with us. As Russia has just attacked Ukraine, fossil fuel prices skyrocketed anew. And that new book of yours is again in the eye of the storm. So I could think of no one better to shed light for El Monitor viewers on what is happening nowadays in the whole world and in the Middle East in particular, and how we can read the present and the future of the energy markets. So let me start by asking you a simple question. What is your assessment of the magnitude of the energy crisis today after the Ukraine war. How would you compare it to the post-October 1973 war situation that you described and analyzed so well in your book, The Prize? So, Gilles, I think, um, first, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation and to be speaking at, uh, at Al Monitor. Um, I think there's a, you just asked two questions. So let me take the first one. Uh, uh, what we have is a combo. Uh, it's a uh, global energy crisis that started before the war. Uh, it really started in the second half of last year as the world came out of, uh, out of uh, COVID and demand bumped up against supply. And so prices already went up. Then, we, of course, we have a geopolitical crisis. And on top of that, I guess you'd say we have an inflation crisis. So all of those things are coming together. And, uh, you know, kind of my expectation, given everything, and we'll come back to it, it's highly likely to get worse. Uh, but you ask a very interesting question compared to the energy crises of the 1970s. And of course, there are a lot of differences. You did not have two nuclear superpowers arrayed against one. You didn't have the leader of one of the nuclear superpowers, Russia, threatening to use nuclear weapons. But there are some similarities that really stand out in my mind. One, the markets then and now were very tight. That is the basis for what we're seeing. Uh, the second thing is it created a lot of political and economic turmoil. And I think you don't have to be a great prophet to see we're going to continue to have a lot of political and economic turmoil. And the third thing, 
I think for me, the most profound point of similarity is the world after the crisis was different than the world before then. And I think that's very definitely going to be the case today. Yeah, and the, the, the 1970s crisis was a game changer in the Middle East also. Yes, you know, of course. Saudi, Saudi Arabia at the time uh, imposed the embargo on oil, so this drove the oil prices up. Then Israel had to negotiate in positions that it never thought it would have to. And uh, so we may expect that a number of things are going to change this time well, also. Well, I think it really rearranges the geopolitical map. We could already start to see, and it was one of the themes I dealt with and deal with in the new map, is that we've moved from a world of, I sometimes call it the WTO consensus, uh, where uh, the world of globalization to a world of great power competition, meaning primarily between the United States and China. And Russia was pretty, we've discovered, was more highly integrated with this, that 60% of world GDP that's loosely known as the West. That's shut off now. And I think what happens is Russia is going to be much more closely aligned with China. China needs Russia to be aligned with it. And I think Russia, is, instead of being integrated in the world economy, is more going to end up more like a dependency of China. That's extremely interesting. So let's see if this prophecy stands. And uh, in the meanwhile, uh, to risk another comparison, uh, which is closer to us in time, you know, the so-called Arab Spring of 10 years ago in 2011, the, the Arab Spring upheavals, uh, followed a hike in oil and grain uh, prices in 2010, when there were those big fires in Ukraine and uh, Australia at the time. And nowadays, not only with the issue of uh, fuel and the like, but with the shortage of grain from Russia and Ukraine in countries that export uh, little or no oil, like Egypt, for instance, with more than 100 million inhabitants, Turkey, 80 million, Tunisia, Lebanon, Syria, you name them. Would you say that we are at the risk of another major social and political crisis in the southern and eastern Mediterranean like we were 10 years ago? I would certainly say so. And one of the things is, you know, the energy and food are more connected than people think because we've calculated that about 70% of the cost of food is actually energy, not only fertilizer, but processing, uh, uh, transportation, and so forth. So they're quite closely allied. And of course, uh, Russia and Ukraine together, uh, world's largest uh, uh, exporter of grain, and the Middle East particularly dependent upon it. So I think that's part of the things to be deeply concerned. How are these countries going to deal with it? How are people going to be able to afford food when these prices are going through the roof? And you can see uh, what it's already doing. So I think there are a lot of follow-on crises and uh, upheavals that follow from this, and that's, you know, the world has changed. So I think keeping in mind the energy crisis and how that changed the world, but also, as you say, um, the impact of food shortages and that, that fire that uh, raged across the, the Middle East and North Africa. What was striking, like, for instance, in Tunisia, you know, what sort of the, the tip of the balance was you had this lower middle class that thought it could make it didn't care about authoritarian regimes and the like, you know, because they thought they would make it to some extent. Suddenly, 
with the hike in the price of bread, and also, you know, they, they couldn't uh, heat their, uh, their food at all. So they sort of decided that they would go against the ruling uh, regimes, and uh, so they, they took to the streets. So this is clearly something which is a problem for us, and also in Europe, an issue of renewed illegal migrations again around, uh, across the Mediterranean. Yeah, um, absolutely, and that um, what these social problems are going to mean in Africa as well. Uh, and add to that that Europe itself is going to have a very tough time because of what's happening with natural gas. And right now, Russia is dramatically cutting back on its gas shipments to Europe. And there's a political strategy there, which is to drive up the price of, um, of uh, natural gas, drive up the price of energy, create economic hardship, uh, create, as Putin said, social instability, and as he said, populist governments coming to, um, to power, and ultimately, um, uh, the strange lang language he said, a change in the, in the elites. But, you know, you can see this happening in France, where... In my own country, we have quasi 90 MPs from the extreme right now who, well, that were elected recently. And if you, I mean, just look at the numbers, you know, I, I, I looked at it, it's a tenfold increase in the number of seats. And, and of course, it's not only extreme right, but it's also um, pro-Putin. So, yeah. um, you know, so, you know, that's the card he's playing right now. So, uh, and then add to that, by the way, that the central banks have woken up to the fact that we have inflation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had the, you know, head of the U.S. Federal Reserve saying, you know, what am I going to deal with, inflation or recession? I'm going to deal with inflation and, you know, pretty growing pervasive view that we're going to see, if not a recession, very low economic growth with all the economic pain that comes from that. So this is, you know, we are in a very turbulent time. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Ambrin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have answered U.S. queries for a rise in oil production, and they said that they were anywhere near full capacity. Or is it in your, in your mind that uh, major oil-producing countries now would give precedence to their own financial interests over their global alliance with the West? Or even would some of them have decided to side with Russia? Well, I mean, in a sense, you have this construct called OPEC+. Plus, and OPEC+, Plus was born out of different circumstances. In 2014, uh, Russia would not work together with Saudi Arabia. And the then oil minister picked up his papers, left the room, 
and said, let the market run the price of oil, went down. Uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin met on the fringes of a conference in Shanghai in 2016, and that gave birth to OPEC Plus and this charter, where basically they were managing the return of oil into the market in a stable way. Obviously, then COVID happened, and you had a collapse like you've never had a collapse. We'd never had negative prices in oil before, and they managed it again. But, you know, I think we've come to the end of that string. Russia's production is not going up. It's going to go down. Uh, and OPEC, you know, the Saudis and the UAE have been increasing their production. Many of the countries cannot increase their production because they didn't invest, they didn't do maintenance, and, you know, they're actually below their quotas. Uh, so you've had this increase, but of course, uh, the U.S. government has looked for, you know, and Europe has wanted to see more. Our own view is that there aren't a lot of cookies in the cookie jar, uh, that, uh, that this capacity even in those, the only two countries with spare capacity are Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE, and they don't have extensive spare capacity. This isn't, you know, so I think sometimes I felt here in Washington, uh, there was a belief that, oh, the Saudis have a lot of oil and just why are they putting it into the market? I think the reality is, you know, they'll put more oil into the market. But if that spare capacity disappeared, I tell you, um, the price would go up, I think, because traders, people in the oil market would be so nervous because there's no reserve. And, and by the way, you know, the only way the oil market has been staying in balance now is because the U.S. and some of the other uh, countries are going into their strategic reserves. Without those strategic reserves, the price you see now would not where it'd be. It'd be a much higher price. And, you know, still going through the next couple of months, I think to add to all the other risk is the risk in terms of, uh, oil, oil, you know, oil prices. And if I could just mention one other thing, uh, as Russia started to cut down its gas shipments to Europe, the price of natural gas in Europe, beginning of June, end of June, just to take one period of time, went up 80%. So the markets are very sensitive to supply now and will be uh, at least until the winter. Now, isn't one place where we can find extra supplies in Iran? And uh, you know, uh, nowadays there's this to and fro movement about signing a new version of the GCPOA. Uh, Bob Malay was in, uh, in Qatar to uh, try to advance on this issue in the name of the, of the American government. And do you think that Iran could pump more oil and gas into the world economy and save the market, so, so to speak, and send prices down? Or is the Iranian oil and gas industry so derelict anyway that it's impossible to cope with it? You know, Gilles, when you, said, when you said one place you could get more oil, I thought you were going to say the United States, but we'll come back to that. Uh, I think uh, there was... There are many reasons Washington wants a nuclear deal with Iran. Obviously, it has to do with nuclear capabilities. It has to do with somehow restoring what was done during the uh, Obama years. But in a way, what's moved to up the list now, which wasn't there a couple of years ago, is uh, more oil. And uh, our belief is that roughly Iran, if all the sanctions are taken off, could put a million and a half barrels a day into the market. and you know, this, it goes back and forth. Is there a deal? Is there not a deal? But uh, 
a million and a half barrels a day would be very significant right now. But uh, that depends on, is there a deal? So you mentioned the United States. Of course, you have shale oil in the back of your head. But let's try to put it together with another uh, issue. Uh, with the 2022 midterm elections coming in the U.S., and the gallon, which is now above five dollars, more or, or less, or try six. Yes, between five and six. Still lower than Europe, lower than France. Yes, uh, we paid four times more than you, but in Europe, but you know, because it, it's it's a basis for. I mean, there are a number of government taxes on yeah, them, it's a and absolutely. So, uh, what do you think are President Biden's options on the table for his Middle East policy in the short term and his? domestic policy also, well, or maybe on the longer well, I th term. I think you're quite right that there's a juncture that these two things have come together now. And uh, uh, in the United States, gasoline prices matter a lot in elections. And you've seen the, actually it started last November when gasoline prices went up before the war, when the administration started in saying, instead of saying we want to close down the oil industry, it's finished, it's the past, they started imploring the domestic industry, can you increase production? Uh, but I think we're seeing, as was the case uh, previous presidents found out, when you're in a crisis like this, you don't have a lot of levers. The things you can do to change, this gets sort of technical, change the specifications for gasoline, you can relieve some regulations. Uh, they're really looking for things that they can do, very well aware that already, um, the Democrats had a weak hand going into this election because of uh, inflation uh, and with gasoline prices, it's a really big worry. But there's just there, there aren't a lot of levers to pull. And so that's why oil from the Middle East, uh, strategic reserve. And it does turn out that uh, the one place oil production is really going up happens to be the United States. And this year, the U.S. will add between 800,000 million barrels a day, which is more new production, I emphasize new production, than the entire rest of the world combined. So that is significant. But I think the fundamental point, Jill, and this goes back to your question about the 1970s and we've seen in other periods, we're in very tight markets. And when you then put a geopolitical crisis on top of that and all these other problems, it's very difficult to maneuver. And this would be true if it was not only Joe Biden as president, but if you had a Republican administration there's just not a lot to do. And so um, the general expectation for November, unless something really surprising happens, is that it's going to be a big Republican year, which will complicate the next two years of the Biden administration, both uh, domestically and in international relations. And so should we say bye-bye to clean energy, or is it even farewell? No, I don't think so. I think uh, it's been quite remarkable the last 10 years how the price of wind and solar has come down. They're very competitive, but they're only part of the answer. Uh, and I think particularly we're in Europe, particularly, you know, it's part of the refrain is we've got to find alternative oil and gas to Russia, but we also have to step on it in terms of renewal, renewals, renewables, and certainly that will uh, continue. And so the energy mix will continue to change. But I think, um, I think for governments, uh, whether they're in the Middle East and they're dealing with food and inflation, or whether they're in Europe and the United States dealing with um, 
energy prices and inflation, uh, this is not an easy time to uh, be running any government. But it's a great time to read the new map, energy, climate, and the clash of, I was saying, the clash of civilization, the clash of nations, pardon my French, uh, by Daniel Jurgen. Thank you very much, Daniel, for uh, coming to uh, El Manu podcast, Reading the Middle East, and looking forward to meeting you anew uh, next time with another expert of the present crisis, uh, more focused on the, uh, the food issue and the food scarcity. Thank you so much and see you next month. If you have not done so already, please sign up for Reading the Middle East and El Monitor's other podcasts on the Middle East with Andrew Parasidinti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Kaspit on your favorite podcast platform.